0: History Re-Read, September 2021, On Liberty. You are very welcome to this podcast, History Re-Read, on the first Monday of every month, I present a commentary on a famous text from history, something familiar that many of you will have already read, while others, myself included, might feel it to be something we should have read, or must have read, but can't remember doing so. Over the other Mondays of the month, I am relating that text, audiobook style, either in full or abridged form. This month it is on Liberty by John Stuart Mill, and the reread is prompted by the following headline and story Shall I Still Wear a Face Mask in Shops and on Public Transport? Latest Government Guidance Explained by Danielle Sheridan, Joe Shute, and Dominic Penner taken from the London Daily Telegraph online on the 19th of July 2021. This article was published on the day restrictions were formally lifted in the UK following a postponement from the 21st of June. The UK government argued for the delay based on projections that 10% more people will have received a first dose of vaccine up from 79%, in addition to an increase of 19% to 76% of the fully vaccinated that will have taken place by the later date as a result of the delay there had been an increase in cases as the Delta variant was discovered to be more transmissible and data was emerging about how the interval between doses could affect levels of protection. Scientists were wary that the return of certain basic freedoms was going to act as a gateway for this variant. On July the 11th, a major international football or soccer tournament came to an end in a match at Wembley Stadium in the capital of the UK with more than 76,000 spectators in attendance there had been ten competition games at this venue with stricter limits on the numbers allowed into the stadium there was no spiraling upwards of infections hospitalizations or deaths however research published in the guardian on the twentieth presented jointly by the department of culture and public health england show that over 9,000 cases can be traced to the latter stages of the tournament. The mood of the country at that time was euphoric, with England's national team having reached the final. If anyone was looking at stats then, they were the sporting ones, rather than those coming out of more scientific investigation." As some scientists had predicted, cases were still rising, peaking at 46,000 on the day before the lifting of social restrictions, the 20th. They then immediately fell. There was no correlation between the drop in cases and the release from the obligation to wear masks. In fact, Some restrictions remained, such as arrivals by air from red-list countries. UK nationals in this situation were, and still are, being forced to quarantine. There were inconsistencies. It fell upon the discretion of the individual, him or herself, to decide on the appropriateness of wearing a mask or not in public places. Yet Transport for London retains a policy of mask-wearing on the underground, buses and cross-link above-ground services. The article appeared in order to clarify the situation for its readership, some of whom refused to address the data, judging by the comments that attended the article inconclusiveness over the individual and mutual benefits of mask-wearing, as well as how the ending of restrictions on wearing them has changed public behaviour in Britain, will be looked at by way of conclusion. On Liberty An Overview Mill offers his own in Chapter 5 of his essay. The maxims are, first, that the individual is not accountable to society for his actions in so far as these concern the interests of no person but himself. Advice, instruction, persuasion, and avoidance by other people, if thought necessary by them for their own good, are the only measures by which society can justifiably express its dislike or disapprobation of his conduct. Secondly, that for such actions as are prejudicial to the interests of others, the individual is accountable and may be subjected either to social or legal punishment, if society is of opinion that the one or the other is requisite for its protection. We will look at the face-mask question in more detail, presently, based on what we understand, so far, about Mill's conception of liberty. Positive and negative freedoms as the necessary context. On the matter of feeling constrained to wear a mask for the sake of one's own health, or to protect others, there is no conclusive evidence about the effectiveness of wearing masks either way. Whether wearing one is ever going to protect the wearer is a moot point, but since the time of Louis Pasteur, doctors have been wearing them to protect their patients. The importance of mask wearing in this case is indisputable. Wearing a mask to abide by the law based on the principle of protecting others is an example of negative freedom. Choosing to wear a mask based on a concern for the well-being of oneself and others is an example of positive freedom. If someone decides not to wear a mask, there might be valid reasons for her or him, let's say them, for the sake of politeness, if not dramatical clarity. They sometimes find it ill-fitting and a problem if they wear glasses which tend to steam up. Furthermore, they may work in a community where others rely on the ability to read their lips, either partly, for example, those working in noisy industrial environments, or more intensively, as with nursing home staff who need to communicate to those of advanced years who are significantly hearing-impaired. During the first wave of the pandemic, with cases rocketing throughout the late spring and early summer of 2020, many could say, among the generally healthy, that they knew of no one suffering from the Covid virus. At that point, The worst hit group was the elderly. Few nurses or carers could say that none of the patients had or had had a virus. The pre-existing isolation, in contrast to the liberty of the general public, was telling caring staff in this situation would have been better informed when it came to deciding on a policy as to mask-wearing as far as protecting the vulnerable against the ravages of the worst viral pandemic since the Spanish flu. The inconveniences in nursing homes of both staff and patients wearing masks, although considerable, must have seemed worthwhile for the general good or utility as John Stuart Mill would have described it. Yet even in desperate circumstances such as these, there was no binary choice in which wearing a mask was uncomplicatedly right and not wearing one wholly wrong. Nor was there, or is there, a straightforward choice between which public institutions are to remain open and which are to be closed." No other place has the potential to spread Covid more than hospitals if the strictest of preventative measures are not taken at all times. Even the best-informed Minister of Health as part of the most competent of governments in london when drawing up lists of places where mask-wearing is to be mandatory and others in which doing so is voluntary there was bound to be some confusion when following the rules there will be anomalies indeed they will be expected and are in fact necessary as the data gathering that comes with a constantly changing situation as new strains of the virus emerge create challenges across different social settings all of which lead to categorizations of situations that are fluid across categories The Telegraph's editorial position in relation to the article The Telegraph politically right of centre, has consistently taken the position that lockdown restrictions were an infringement of civil liberties, and that it is for the individual to exercise responsibility when it comes to protecting others from the virus, and not for the state to enforce measures as to public safety. The article simply lists what the measures were that no longer apply, leaving the reader to note the contradictions with the benefit of hindsight. More tendentiously, it highlights the position of local government as voiced by the mayors of England's two biggest metropolitan areas. London and Greater Manchester, where mask-wearing is to remain compulsory on public transport for the sake of protecting the vulnerable, then contrasts this with examples of company policy in the private sector beyond municipal control. In particular, the rail delivery group were reported as saying that passengers would be encouraged to wear masks when stations are busy. Many rail operators have said they will expect passengers to put on masks when in a crowded carriage. It raises the prospect of passengers having to put on and then remove coverings throughout a journey, depending which rail service or station they are using and how busy it is to add to the confusion some operators have said they expect passengers to wear masks on trains regardless of how busy a service is while others require it only if a carriage is crowded End of quote surprisingly there was nothing about the latest medical evidence as to the effectiveness of wearing masks as both a protective measure taken by the wearer and the protection of others as a result of someone using one or other form of face covering Despite the restrained reporting, the article prompted 855 reader comments, a few going into detail about the benefits of mask-wearing, some stating a positive libertarian position, that it was a matter of their human right to be free of all rules regarding masks, whatever the consequences for others. There were also the usual conspiracy theories, suggesting things like how Chinese pharmaceutical companies have paved the way for the introduction of their products on the international consumer markets by planning the release of the COVID into the environment to optimize sales. However, hundreds of comments dismissed the need for wearing masks in short text message type posts. The few who elaborated insisted that masks are unhygienic, confusing their efficacy with the undoubtedly unhygienic manner in which some dispose of them after use. Its relevance to Mill's conception of liberty Mill would have only recognized the exercising of liberty in the refusal of some to wear a mask if no one else was bound to suffer as a result. A die-hard elitist and scourge of politicians, he would have sided with the scientific community against the mediocrity, if not incompetence, of politicians, and, even more volubly, against the fecklessness of the uneducated." Mill's philosophy was based on the concept of utilitarianism, something that had been about for over a century. The most enduring formulation of the idea was propounded by Jeremy Bentham in 1780. Nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do, Cutting to the second clause of his principles, he then says, By the principle of utility is meant that principle which approves or disapproves of every action whatsoever according to the tendency it appears to have to augment or diminish the happiness of the party whose interest is in question, or, what is the same thing, in other words, to promote or to oppose that happiness. I say of every action whatsoever, and therefore not only of every action of a private individual, but of every measure of government. Before Mill started grappling with the concept, much had been done with it involving algorithms, in particular hedonic calculus, used for measuring the degree of happiness possible between the alleviation of pain and the maximization of pleasure. Mill believed that such deliberations were pointless or even harmful without consideration of human conscience, but in making judgments about human nature he was guilty of a number of fallacies, more of this later. If, according to Mill, a healthy person, not merely asymptomatic, but tested and found to have no infection, refuses to wear a mask, but subsequently contracts the virus and dies as a result, then they hurt no one but themselves. If this is where it ends, then there are grounds for defending their exercising of civil liberty as far as this goes." Mill would have supported this position, but what if their family suffers as a result of, in Victorian terms, the loss of the breadwinner? Moreover, assuming this person does not perish in some hovel away from civilization, attempting to save the life of such an individual still poses an element of risk to the medical and nursing staff. It seems a latter-day John Stuart Mill would have had zero tolerance not only of anti-maskers, but anti-vaxxers. The refusal to accept vaccination would amount to an even more flagrant disregard of public safety as the benefits to society, the utility of vaccination the evidence for the efficacy of the various vaccinations as protection from COVID is overwhelming despite side effects in a small percentage of cases and some doubt as to how long the protection lasts and whether longer intervals between the initial dose and a second booster dose is likely to increase protection those who refuse to be vaccinated play both wittingly and unwittingly a more active part in spreading infection. Despite rejecting the hedonic calculus of Jeremy Bentham, Mill was still playing a numbers game, not necessarily callous about individual human suffering, but remaining aloof over questions about the experiential nature of pain, believing that it can be aggregated out to a statistic as if the well-being of society is safeguarded not by the challenges of those who suffer the least, but by the fewest possible suffering in full measure. Now let's look in detail at Mill's essay on liberty without further delay. Mill was not interested in questions of determinism, free will, or metaphysics generally. He was concerned more with civilization and the ways societies organize themselves, and by extension primarily the place of the individual within society. The introduction to his essay on liberty makes this clear. Here he sets out his three main ideas in descending order of importance. 1. Freedom in the matter, quote, of the liberty of thought and discussion. 2. The freedom, quote, of individuality as one of the elements of well-being. 3. Freedom in the matter of the limits to the authority of society over the individual. Respectively, they are essentially the freedom of speech, the freedom to pursue tastes if they do no harm to others, even if they are considered immoral by society, and the freedom of assembly. They form the three central chapters of the essay following the introduction and before offering applications, here mentioning along the way high-stakes exams, free trade, drugs, the slave trade, as well as others. The second chapter is the most important from the point of view of philosophical inquiry and the history of philosophy, as well as political science. A slight digression. When reading the comments to the Telegraph article discussed a few moments ago, I was struck not so much by the liberty of thought expressed over mask-wearing, but the refusal to abide by the measure as far as in doing so it must, to some extent, require habit-forming tendencies in people. The matter then becomes one of taste rather than moral conviction. This is the domain of chapter three rather than chapter two. Some way into chapter three, Mill asserts that quote, society has now fairly got the better of individuality, and the danger which threatens human nature is not the excess but the deficiency of personal impulses and preferences. Having already mentioned the Holy Roman Empire and unspecified individuals of strong will, to use his phrase, who at that time managed to reign in the excesses of the popes, Mill continues, the popes asserted a power over the whole man claiming to control all his life in order to control his character which society had not found any other sufficient means of binding Mill, who was among the more forward-thinking in relation to women's rights in the middle third of the nineteenth century, might have mentioned that this claiming of control was more binding or oppressive for women than for men. Moreover, given that he is more interested in consequences than in human motivation or tastes... It perhaps does not matter that he fails to recognize dogma in both these spheres, but in alluding to the Holy Roman Empire it would seem odd if we were expected to infer that Charlemagne and his successors acted, to use his words, on impulse from personal preference— In any case, the great man theory of history in relation to the Italian Renaissance is evident, as is what followed the Age of Reason, the passing of which he seems to lament when suggesting his everyday contemporaries are more interested in their position in society than in their own humanistic development. Then, in a related discussion on Calvinism, he completely neglects the humanism of the northern renaissance, championing the ancient Greek statesman Pericles above the Scots Calvinist thinker John Knox, in this connection an Aunt Sally. He might have mentioned instead Albrecht Dürer or Shakespeare. Here he introduces the fallacy that a state of original sin cripples original thinking, but the rigour with which Calvinists read and continue to read the Gospels in order to understand the nature of atonement can be equally applied to secular matters of humankind generally. We will come to chapter 4 presently. In the relatively shorter Chapter 4, Mill looks at the legitimate role of governments when it comes to punishing a person for neglecting to fulfil a duty to others, or causing harm to them. His position is that the consequence of neglect should be punished, but not the vice that gave rise to it in the first place. He gives, as an example, polygamy among the Mormons of the Utah Territory which did not become a U.S. state until eighteen ninety six a generation after mill's death he regarded with great personal distaste the practice of plural marriages, on the part of the men, as tyrannical, and argues his point well, even in relation to figures of speech today, Quote, it is a direct infraction of that principle, liberty, being a mere riveting of the chains of one half of the community, and an emancipation of the other, from reciprocity of obligation towards them, However, he accepted the position that Mormons were entitled to settle their own Zion or New Jerusalem out of harm's way, harm to the United States, but in viewing them as a sect, he is guilty of the fallacy that those far away are somehow more homogeneous as a community than members of one's own immediate environment." proportionately an extended religious community is not going to have the same social diversity as the citizens within a nation-state, but Mill is mistaken in dismissing Mormon practices when asserting that half the womenfolk are ready to be one of any number of wives to the same man, while the other half are not. There is no mention of Mormons who feel their liberty is being denied by other Mormons, not just potentially wives in a certain type of marriage. Coming back to the face mask question, in conclusion, without any further delay. In countries such as Japan, if someone is ill, for example, with the common cold, the onus is on them to protect others. If then of necessity they have to leave their house, it is considered appropriate that they wear a mask. Fellow citizens in due course, as of habit, keep their distance the mask signals the physical parameters others should observe for their own safety in a non-threatening way. The imposition of this kind of behaviour on cultures not used to it, in other words the obligation of social distancing in countries like Britain and Ireland, has led to both mask-wearing and social distancing, as well as other measures like personal hand and face sanitation, laying bare the stark reality of today being qualitatively different from the norms of yesterday. The things we tended to take for granted as to our everyday public behavior are now open to question. The recovery not only of people's health among those who have been affected by the virus but of social norms, cannot simply amount to the restoration of a not-so-distant pre-Covid yesterday. This being the case, as always, there needs to be a scapegoat in order to give the resentment focus, in this case China, a country contemptuous of freedom and civil liberties. Fear of this Asian giant has given rise to conspiracy theories about Covid as the China pandemic, as it was there that the virus apparently originated. At the risk of resorting to hyperbole, this kind of mentality goes against the grain of European Enlightenment thinking. Having made the distinction between positive and negative freedoms, within the European intellectual context, and discussed at length the imposition of mask-wearing, in particular by the authorities in Great Britain, the persistence of this measure as a voluntary selfless act can be seen as much as a manifestation of positive freedom as it is with those choosing not to wear masks." Here the concept of utilitarianism falls down. Continuing with a libertarian, right-leaning perspective in this instance will barely allow us to pick away further at Mill's position. There are more radical points of view. Let's take another article, this time from the Guardian newspaper, published on Friday the 20th of August, taking as its source the UK office for national statistics. Here it was reported that, quote, about nine in ten people in the UK are still wearing face coverings at least some of the time, despite them no longer being compulsory, official figures show. From a left-leaning perspective, this matter is less straightforward. If it were ever that in the first place, those looking at the evidence and the failings of government action during the worst of the pandemic and the propaganda used to create the fear that cowers people into following restrictions would find some sympathy among utilitarian thinkers but generally among the fair-minded, after the worst of this, whenever that may be, the blanket refusal to wear masks among the ignorant and conceited will not be nothing. I am echoing the high-minded language of Victorian intellectuals like Mill here. This would be seen as an example of delinquency demanding correction in the form of social conscience-raising interventions, to use modern-day jargon. The state would go about this as a precaution against more heinous violations demanding punishment. Despite his general distrust of the state. John Stuart Mill would unequivocally be in favour of this, but wrongdoing in cases of serious crime is judged primarily on the outcome of people's actions, although motivation is taken into account as far as mitigating circumstances are concerned. Using the same approach to discern collective happiness, and then designating that happiness as a utility as John Stuart Mill did, before looking for evidence of it in the absence of harm to others, amounts to a kind of double negative. That is, not only the absence of harm, but the lack of evidence as far as what people are actually motivated by, reducing us to the positivist assumption that what people choose to do of their own volition signals manifest personal happiness. But it is generally hard to discern, let alone second-guess personal motivation and the will towards happiness in individuals otherwise we have discussed voluntary mask-wearing this month, with the implication on my part that it has been good for society yet if it were even possible, it would be difficult to ascertain whether someone is wearing a mask, and in doing so, exercising positive freedom out of an altruistic concern for protecting others, or constrained by negative freedom, understood as the protection of others through the lawful curtailment of civil liberties.